0: So turn with me there now, if you will, Galatians 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Father, I do pray that you would work today so that we would put aside the desires of the flesh and walk by the Spirit, sow to the Spirit, and produce the fruit of the Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We human beings, many of us anyway, are natural pendulum swingers, aren't we? natural over correctors overcompensators so that if you tell your 16-year-old daughter she's driving way too close to the center lane she may overcompensate so much that she leaves you feeling like you're in one of those old rumble seats because she's way out into the groove pavement over on the right hand shoulder or if you urge your son not to step into the batter's box and watch hittable pitches float harmlessly by without ever taking the bat off his shoulders, you may soon discover him not only swinging, but swinging at balls completely over his head to make sure that he is at least swinging the bat. And so it goes, not only with young people, but with older ones as well. One set of parents was too harsh in their discipline and so their grown-up sons and daughters scarcely want to discipline their kids at all. One head coach lived by the philosophy that defense wins championships and since he didn't win any championships everyone is carping for the next replacement to be an innovative offensive guru and then three years later the same people are griping that we need a coach who understands the defensive side of the ball. Or maybe a Christian finds himself among a gathering of fellow believers who misuse and legalistically misapply God's law and who add to it some shibboleths of their own, and it leaves a bad taste in his mouth eventually. That Christian may be tempted to swing his pendulum to the other extreme and to begin to act as though the Christian is not constrained by any law at all. You may have known someone like that, someone who grew up around legalism, around a religion that was built on rules only, around a group of people who, though they may not have said it, they acted as though they were right with God because they kept the rules, often their own man-made rules, so much better than everyone else kept the rules. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And perhaps the person you knew who grew up in that kind of legalistic milieu Perhaps when they grew up, they saw the error of that kind of religion and they fled from it so far in the other direction that any mention of the law in the Christian life, any mention of rules, any mention of God's expectation for our behavior was like a bad taste in their mouths all over again. And so their pendulum swung from legalism, which is a misuse of the law, to antinomianism, which is the idea that we can leave the law aside altogether in the Christian life. And of course, it can happen the other way around too, can it? When a Christian finds himself growing dissatisfied with the spiritual setting around him because his fellow church members seem to be just too morally lax, too unconcerned about holiness, little different from the world and their behavior, the temptation, because we're so prone to overcorrect, the temptation for that person is to seek out a religious community which has rules and regulations about Everything even if we recognize that many of them are man-made. And so we human beings, darkened as our minds have become by the fall, we human beings are ever prone to throwing the baby out with the bathwater, to overcompensating, to swinging the pendulum of our thought from one unhelpful extreme to the opposite unhelpful and unbiblical extreme. And the Apostle Paul, author of this letter to the Galatians, knows this about us. And he knows this about his friends in Galatia. And so he comes to this point in his letter, a letter in which he's been focusing all of his ammunition against one extreme, against the extreme of legalism, against the idea that we can be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Paul comes to this point in his letter with the balance of what he has said fully in his mind and fully on one side of the argument. And now he is going to throw some weight on the other side of the scales so that the Galatians don't swing from one unbiblical extreme to the opposite unbiblical extreme. He's now going to guard them and us as well against the possibility that we might flee so hard from legalism, from a misuse of the law, that we run to the other extreme and presume that the Christian needs no law at all. Because perhaps you remember the predicament into which Paul has written this letter. A group of false teachers has shown up in Galatia and begun convincing these mostly Gentile Christians in Galatia that though they have repented of their sins and though they have entrusted themselves to Christ as Savior, that actually isn't enough to be declared righteous in God's courtroom. They need, so the false teaching went, they need to repent of sin, yes, and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, yes, plus they also need to begin keeping the Old Testament ceremonial and civil laws. In order to really be right with God, in other words, these Gentiles need Jesus plus, Jesus plus Moses, Jesus plus their own efforts, Jesus plus adherence to these Old Testament ceremonies. And Paul has said about, in this letter, shooting that bad theology down from all sorts of directions and with different kinds of ammunition. And one of the things that he's done to tear that bad theology down, that Jesus plus theology down, is to show that the Mosaic law, the rites, the rituals, the civil penalties of the old covenant, were never intended to To be a means of justification. They were never intended to be a way by which we might earn a right standing in God's sight. But rather, he has shown that all the ceremonies and the civil statutes of the law of Moses were actually, you remember, like a tutor, a custodian, which was to watch over the Jewish people like tutors and custodians watch over young people and to instruct the Jewish people and to guide the Jewish people all with the goal that they might embrace Christ as their Savior. And Paul argues, now that Christ has come, now that the inheritance has come, for which the tutor was making the children ready, for them to go back under the custody of the tutor, to go back to having the law looking over their shoulder like a chaperone, would be to submit to bondage. The same way as if a grown man had to continually even in his adulthood, have a guardian watching over his every move. That would be bondage. But if we're in Christ, none of this is true of us. If we're in Christ, Paul has argued, we have come to the maturity of the faith and we're no longer in need of the old tutor. We're spiritually grown-ups in Christ, and Christ has made us free from the old custodian. Chapter 3, verse 25, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now that faith has come, in other words, we are no longer in need of the Old Testament ceremonies and civil penalties. But having said all that, having shot down this false theology that's sending people back under the custodian, back into bondage, having said all that, you can tell from our passage that we read today that Paul is concerned that the Galatians do not swing the pendulum, to the opposite extreme. He's concerned that in hammering home the point that Christians are free from the Mosaic law, that these Galatians don't somehow get the idea that in Christ we have no need for any law or any rules at all. He's concerned that when we empty out the bathwater of the Mosaic law, which has served its purpose and in which we no longer need to bathe, he's concerned that when we empty out that bathwater, we don't at the same time throw out the baby of the moral laws and expectations that are still part and parcel of the life of God's people. And you can hear that concern right there in verse 13, can't you? "'For you were called to freedom, brethren,' That's what he's been saying for the last four and a half chapters. You were called to freedom, brethren, but here's the warning. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, yes, you are free from the Mosaic law. You are not under the old tutor, the old, the old custodian. You need not submit to the right of circumcision or to eat kosher or to keep the Jewish festivals or to stone people for cursing their parents and so on. The custodian is no longer watching over you in these ways if you're in Christ. For you are called to freedom, brethren. And yet, that freedom, verse 13 does not mean that you can live any way you want. Isn't that what he says? You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That freedom from the Mosaic law does not mean that there are no rules or expectations at all in the Christian life. There is still sin, there are still expectations. There is still a way that we can live by the flesh. There is still, on the other hand, the moral law, verse 14, which boils down to the overarching command to love your neighbor as yourself. And there are a, host of whole, a whole host of other behaviors as well that are ungodly verses 19 through 21, and a whole host of behaviors which are godly in verses 22 and 23. And so we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We mustn't swing the pendulum from one biblical extreme to another. You are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Do not think that since you're in Christ, well, it doesn't matter how you live because we're not under law and Christ has brought us salvation. And so What do we do? It doesn't matter. Christ has covered it all anyway. That is the wrong way of thinking, Paul says. So that's the general direction in which Paul begins to head as we come into this passage to remind us that though we're free in Christ, it's not freedom to do whatever we like, but that we're still under moral principles and law. And in fleshing out exactly how it is that we are to live these things out, Paul is going to use, you probably heard them already, four key terms that I want us to spend the rest of our time unpacking. There are four words here that we must understand. If we are to understand this passage, and really if we're to understand how we are to live as Christians, we need to understand what Paul says about these four terms, and they are these. Law, love, flesh, and spirit. If you were just to go back and read this passage a few times over and try to say, what are the main things he's talking about here? What are the things that he keeps coming back to? Those are the four things you would say. Law, love, flesh, and spirit. And I want us to unpack each of them from these last 14 verses of Galatians 5 now so that we understand how we shall live as free men, women, boys, and girls in Christ. And so we'll begin with the concept of law. Law. What does Paul say about law in this passage? Well, for one thing, he reiterates again that there is one sense in which we are not under the law. Look at verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, If the Holy Spirit is in you, and if you are being led by him, you will not need a custodian standing over you all the time, watching over your every step. If you are led by the Spirit, you no longer need the mosaic ceremonies and symbols which point to Christ because you found the real thing, or rather have been found by him. And furthermore, maybe even more to the point here, if you are led by the Spirit, you no longer need the threatening of the mosaic civil penalties hanging over your head and keeping you from sin. You no longer need to be told, if you curse your parents, they can stone you. Because if you are led by the Spirit, you have God's moral law written on your heart, according to the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, and you have the Spirit in you motivating you to keep God's moral law, so that the threatening of stoning, for instance, no longer needs to be dangled over your head. The Spirit moves you to obey the truth that God has written on your heart. So that the point of verse 18, again, is not that we no longer need laws that tell us not to covet or or to be idolatrous, or to honor our parents, and so on. The point of verse 18 is that if we are led by the Spirit, we no longer need these mosaic laws which point us to Christ through symbol, and we definitely no longer need the civil penalties against our sins that threaten us and cause us not to sin, because we have the Spirit guiding us in a new and better way so that we don't want to sin if we're led by the Holy Spirit. Christians, in other words, Paul is saying in verse 18, Christians ought to do what is right, not because the Old Testament says that they will be penalized if they don't, put outside the camp or something like that. Christians ought to do what's right because they are led by the Spirit who moves them to love what is right. And so that's one thing that Paul says about the law in these final verses of Galatians 5, that there are aspects of the law in which led by the Spirit we no longer need the law, most especially the threatenings of the law. But then again, we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because up in verse 14, Paul references the law, or at least the moral aspect of the law, as something for which Christians must still strive. The whole law, he says in verse 14, the whole law, which from the context of the book we understand here to mean the whole of God's moral commandments for us, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So notice what Paul is doing here. He's quoting the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting one particular commandment of God's moral law, and he's actually saying that that one commandment sums up all the other moral commandments. The moral law, in other words, is a law of love. And Paul just told us in verse 13 that we are to love, which means that we are to keep this commandment. There are still commandments and laws for believers. And so this is the second thing I want you to see concerning the law here in the last half of Galatians 5. Yes, there are aspects of the law, verse 18, under which we no longer need to operate, but also in verse 14, we need to see that the moral law, the law that teaches us how to love, is still effect, is still in effect for the believer in Jesus. And that brings us to one more thing we need to say about the law in this passage, and that is that the moral law, as we often call it, the law that has to do with our moral behavior, and not just the Old Testament ceremonies and civil statutes, the moral law boils down to love. According to verse 14, the moral law boils down to love. Isn't that what Paul says there? The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just think it out in terms of the Ten Commandments, which are the the bedrock of God's moral statutes. They're not the only ones of God's moral statutes, but they are the bedrock. Think specifically about Commandments 5 through 10. Honor your father and mother and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, etc. All of those commandments, 5 through 10, have to do with the specifics of how we love other people, how we love our neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? Well, your parents are your neighbor, and you honor them. Your neighbor's life should be valuable to you. Your neighbor's marriage bed and your own marriage bed should be valuable to you. Your neighbor's property should be valuable to you so that you don't steal it. Your neighbor's honor and his right to know truth and not falsehood should be valuable to you. This is how we love our neighbor. We find it right there in the second table of the Ten Commandments. And of course, there are positive side to those commandments as well. So that. Love is not merely avoidance ethics, but positively blessing others in the realms of their property and their livelihood and their marriage and so on. So that when we take God's moral law as a whole, what we find is that it is fulfilled in the commandment to love. If we would love our neighbors, we wouldn't break any of the last six commandments. And if we want to know how to love our neighbors, we can look at the last six commandments. And of course, though Paul doesn't address it here, The moral law not only enjoins us to love our neighbor, but to love the Lord our God as well, doesn't it? The specifics of which love we find in the first four commandments regarding God's exclusivity, the prohibition against worshiping him using idols, the sanctity of his name, and the sanctity of his day. If you want to love God, these are the kinds of things that you will do. And so if we can summarize what we learned from this passage about God's law, it's this. That if we are led by the Spirit, we no longer need the Old Testament ceremonies and the Old Testament penalties hanging over our heads to to drive us to Christ and to motivate us to obedience, because the Spirit is working that in us Himself. And yet, what the Spirit works us toward is love, which is the summary of God's moral law, the law of love, to which law we must still adhere. And I wonder if you're doing that. I wonder if you're adhering to God's moral law, to the law about loving God and loving your neighbor. Or if you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and told yourself that, you know, in this era of the New Testament, we don't have to keep any certain commandments. Or you've told yourself that since you're under grace, you can get away with certain levels of disobedience because after all, I'm not going to be right with God by how well I honor my parents or how well I pay my taxes anyway, and so I can let those things slide a little bit. But no, Paul says, if you're a Christian, you don't turn your freedom into an opportunity to sin. You must live as a Christian, as a free man, woman, boy, or girl, under the law of love. And if you understand the law of love, you'll see it running parallel to God's commandments, Old Testament and New And so you'll delight to honor your parents if you're a Christian. And you'll love your neighbor by giving the government what is due to it. And you will love God's day by keeping it holy. And you will love your church by forgiving your brother and so on. I hope that is your heartbeat. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And since the law is a law of love, we need to go on and consider what else Paul has to tell us about love in this passage in the second place. Love. What does Paul say about love? Well, we've already been seeing that love, true love, biblical love, runs along the same track as do God's commandments that it is love that fulfills the commandments, and it's the commandments that show us how to love. But then Paul also gives some specifics in this passage about what that love will actually look like in the context of life together as a local church. Listen to verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Warnings about life in the church, love in the church. And then he picks back up along a similar theme in verse 26 at the end of the chapter. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So you have these one another's in verse 15 and 26. How how does love look like in the everyday life of the local church? And the answer is, not only is love the fulfillment of the law, but very specifically, love means serving other people, verse 13, and not constantly bickering with them, in verses 15 and 26. Love in one very practical sense, means serving other people rather than constantly bickering with them. Now, I think that that is fairly self-explanatory, so I won't dwell long on those two things, except to say that perhaps Paul mentions this, serving rather than bickering, because there was a particular problem with bickering in Galatia. And perhaps there's a problem with bickering in some of our lives as well or with just not serving others. Think it out in your own life. Are you the kind of person in your family, in your workplace, maybe even with someone else in the church, are you the kind who is constantly biting and devouring, criticizing, complaining, nitpicking? As I studied this, I was convicted by it myself. I'm also convicted in noticing that the opposite of biting and devouring, according to verses 13 through 15, the opposite of this nitpicking, this this bickering, is not simply that we not bite and that we not devour, but the opposite, verse 13, is that positively we serve one another. And so who are you going to serve in the coming days? In this church body and outside of it. In other words who are you going to love? Love is service. And then notice this about love as well, namely that love is a part of the fruit of the Spirit down in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love right at the top of the list, which is probably not accidental. And that means if the fruit of the Spirit is love, that means that if we really have the Holy Spirit, if we are really led by the Holy Spirit, if we are really Christians, in other words, we will love. It's just a part of who we are. You may not love as well as you like. You certainly, and I don't either, love as well as we should undoubtedly we do not love as well as we will when we are glorified in Christ's presence, but one of the hallmarks of the Spirit's presence in us, one of the definite fruits of true Christianity is that God's people will love others, and especially other believers. Which means, again, not only that we won't fight with them, but that we will positively serve them, verse 13. Love is just Part and parcel of the normal Christian life. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love for one another. There may be other ways that people will know that we're his disciples, but Jesus mentions that one. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so do you? Do I? Do we really, do you really love other people? Not just in that sort of fuzzy, nonspecific way when you see someone hurting and your heart is moved and you go, oh, I feel so bad for them, which is not wrong, but which if it doesn't lead to real action, which is either prayer or, or physical action, if there's no evidence of your love besides a feeling, do you really love that person? After the manner of verse 13? After the manner that you will assuredly do if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, in other words. So then, love is among the fruit of the Spirit, which means that all spiritual people will have it, and which makes it a good test of the reality of our Christianity. But also, since love is among the fruit of the Spirit, the good news is that you and I don't need to work it up ourselves. You may need to work at love, but you don't have to work up love. Because it blossoms in you and comes to fruition in you by the power of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so if you think that you can't love because of the darkness that you see in your own heart, or if you think that you can't love a particular person because of the darkness that you see in their actions towards you, the good news in verse 22 is that actually, yes, you can. Because true Christian love does not arise from the Christian, first of all, but from the Holy Spirit who is in you. Just like a seed in your garden, sprouting up into all sorts of fruit that was not there before. The garden grows the fruit, yes, just like the Christian grows the fruit, but it's the seed that is the key. And the Holy Spirit is the seed. And I hope that's a great encouragement to someone today. This verse does not say that Love is the fruit of your own goodness, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, then you really can love, even if you feel like your heart is broken, because the Spirit is able to produce fruit in you that you can never work out on your own And then speaking of that which we can never work out on our own, speaking of the weakness and the lovelessness and the vileness that is in us by nature, we need to go now and look at these things uh, in the third place, noticing what Paul says in this passage about the flesh. So we've thought about the law, we've thought about love, we need to think thirdly now about the flesh. What does Paul say about the flesh? Well, first let's just ask And make it clear what is the flesh as Paul describes it here. Flesh can mean two different things in the Bible. Which one does it mean here? Well, here, Paul is not primarily talking about the flesh that's on your bones. Flesh in this passage and others like it is not a synonym for your physical body as though your physical body were the seat of all the evil that is in you. That's not true. Your sin nature and mine, while it is seated in our physical bodies, is not just seated in our bodies, it's seated in our souls as well. It's on the throne in the inner man as well as the outer man. For does not Jeremiah tell us that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Sometimes people confuse this. They think that the inside of us is the spiritual part, the part that kind of responds to God and is good, and that the outside part of us is the sinful part. But it's not true. You're sinful all the way through, and so am I, if you're apart from Christ. The heart slash soul and the physical body are indwelt with sin. The inner man and the outer man, the whole man, in other words, is desperately sick. And when Paul speaks of the flesh in this passage, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the whole man, the inner man and the outer man, all of which is opposed to God. He's talking about our nature, which is indwelt by sin. And then, more directly to the point, what Paul says about that nature, what Paul says about that flesh, is that it still remains in us. The flesh, the fleshly nature still remains in us even after we've come to Christ, even after we've been born again, even after we've been indwelt by the Spirit. That's astonishing, isn't it? Because elsewhere, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And later in this very passage, he's going to tell us in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And yet here in verses 16 and 17, what he says is that The flesh, this old part of our nature, this sinful part of our nature, is still in us, desiring what it desires in verse 16, and opposing what the Spirit desires in verse 17. And while we haven't time this morning to consider how this can be, to dwell on how the flesh can still exist in us alongside the Spirit when we've crucified the flesh and so on, we don't have time to consider how that can be this morning, but the main thing we need to understand is that it is true. The Christian is a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, with two natures, if you will. He has a new nature, and he still has the remnants of his old nature as well. He has a spiritual nature, both made new by and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but he also has a fleshly nature as well. And the two natures within us, the two men within us, war against one another. And that's the second thing we need to see about the flesh, that it really does still live in us, verse 17, opposing the work of the Spirit at so many points in our lives. Paul is writing to Christians here and telling them that it's possible that they could carry out the desire of the flesh. And that's why we must intentionally, verse 16, purposefully walk by the Spirit instead. Because otherwise, you will often default to the old patterns, to the walkways of the flesh that were so familiar to you before you met Christ. And I wonder if you're doing that. I wonder if you are aware of the old patterns in your life, of anger, or addictive tendencies, or laziness, or wasting time, or dishonesty, or lust, or gossip, or bitterness, whatever it is. And I wonder... If you're aware of those tendencies such that you're intentionally, purposefully choosing to walk in a different pattern and to combat these things by sowing to the Spirit, by placing yourself under the preached Word and opening yourself to the Word in your own Bible and giving yourself to prayer and to watchfulness and so on, are you walking by the Spirit? Are you doing those things which are in step with the Spirit, as the NIV and ESV translate verse 25? Or are you just defaulting to the old patterns that characterize your flesh? And then there's something else to say about the flesh from this latter half of Galatians 5. Not only that it refers to our whole sinful nature, not only that it's still alive within us, but we also need to notice the list of fleshly deeds which Paul enumerates in verses 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." Now, just a couple of questions briefly about that list that Paul lists there. First, did you notice that anger is in the same list with immorality? Sexual immorality is probably what he has in mind. Did you notice that envy is in the same verse with carousing? And that jealousy is lumped in with idolatry? See, we think immorality and carousing and idolatry are so wicked, and they are, but somehow we think they're so wicked at the expense of not realizing the anger, envy, jealousy, and the like are as wicked as they are. But they're all in the same list, which goes to show us that God sees our sins, the sins that we religious folks are prone to, the sins that we treat as respectable, as Jerry Bridges put his finger on it, God sees that these sins are in us, and he lists them along with the sins that we think are unrespectable, and what we realize is that these sins are just as hateful to God and come from the exact same place, namely our flesh, as the quote-unquote big sins. And we need to hear that really well, some of us who think that all the bad people are out there somewhere. And then the second question to ask of these verses is whether or not you saw your own face in the mirror. Because sometimes we read the lists of sins that Paul gives us in his writings, and he gives us a few of them. Sometimes we read these lists of sins almost like we're listening to the police blotter, knowing good and well that we're not going to hear our names in a place like this. But I urge you just to listen with me again and listen even a little more carefully to see if you can't hear the Holy Spirit whispering your name in back of some of these fleshly deeds and convicting you to leave them behind because, in fact, you are all tangled up in them even as we speak. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. The flesh still does dwell in us, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? And so we have great need to sow to the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, and to continue crucifying the flesh as Paul says we have done in Christ, verse 24, and as we must continue to do day by day in Christ, lest we find ourselves among those, verse 21, who practice such deeds of the flesh, who make a habit of them, in other words, and who prove themselves to be unbelievers. It's a serious word at the end of verse 21, isn't it? He talks about all these deeds, and then he says, Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, those who make a habit of them, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we we could parse what that means in terms of whether he's talking about losing your salvation or proving to have never had salvation. It's the latter And we could talk about why it's the latter and not the former. But in the end, the result is still the same for the fleshly man, isn't it? And in the end, the verse means exactly what it says it means in black and white. And we must not theologize it away. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, those who belong to Christ Jesus... Verse 24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now it's true, according to verses 16 and 17, that we've not crucified the flesh so thoroughly as to have left it behind altogether. But if we are in Christ, we have crucified it in such a way that the flesh will not ultimately win. It's another way you can know you're in Christ. How do I know I'm in Christ? One way is that I love the brethren. Another way is that I see that I'm putting to death the flesh, putting to death the sin habits in my life. If I'm not hating sin and and putting it to death, warring against it, then I must not be a Christian because those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that's the last thing to say about the flesh, very simply, is that it is crucified in Christ. Christ. Now, what Paul says here specifically is that the flesh is crucified by those who belong to Christ. But the reason why the flesh is crucified by those who belong to Christ is because it is Christ through his Spirit who gives us the strength to do the crucifying. And it's Christ who is crucified on our behalf so that we might do the crucifying and so that we might be crucified with him. And so, if you're sitting here today, realizing that your life is being lived in the flesh, if you're sitting here today realizing verses 19 through 21 are about you, and you know that you must stop, please, please hear me well when I say that you can't stop apart from Christ, but that with Christ all things are possible. Christ is the one who enables you to put these sins away. And so if you're here this morning, mired in sin, the solution is not in your try-harders and your do-betters and your bootstraps. All these things will have no avail if you do them in your own strength. But Christ can set you free. Christ can set you straight. And, of course, Christ will forgive your sins if you confess them to Him since He died, both to overcome sin's power and its penalty. So flee to Christ and ask him to do for you and in you what only he can do. And one of the things he does for those who are his is to send his spirit into their hearts. And that brings us to consider our final heading today, which is to notice what Paul says to us concerning the spirit. Law, love, flesh, spirit. Three things Paul says about the Spirit before finished. The first is that what we said about love before is true of the whole cornucopia of fruit that is enumerated in verses 22 through 23. Namely, that it's not just the Spirit who produces love, it's the Spirit who produces all of the fruit here in these famous two verses. If you have genuine Christian love, or joy, or peace, or self-control, or what have you. It's not because you are so wonderful and strong in your own right, but because you have in you the wonderful Holy Spirit working these things on your behalf so that He must always get the praise. But then on the other hand, if you're lacking in these things, if you're not a joyful person naturally, If you have trouble with self control, if patience is not your forte, if you're having difficulty loving someone because it is the fruit of the Spirit, all is not lost for you. Because the fruit that is bunched together in these verses is not, first of all, the fruit of the Christian who struggles in his own nature to love and to rejoice and so on. It's the fruit, first of all, of the Spirit. Now, it is the Christian's fruit as well, because the Christian must cooperate with the Spirit, as we'll see. But ultimately, it's the Spirit from whom the fruit sprouts. The Spirit is the seed, if you will, while we only provide some of the watering, and we don't even do that in our own strength. But the fruit grows ultimately out of the seed, not merely out of the water that's added or the soil in which it's planted. And so... If it's the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of you, brothers and sisters, you are not without hope this morning, even if you realize that there is no seed of gentleness or joy or peace or love in you by nature. You may produce fruit just the same because it's the fruit of the Spirit who works in you and not just the fruit of the Christian. But then the second thing to say is that while it is the Spirit who ultimately produces the fruit, yet we must By the Spirit's power, of course, we must yet ourselves do our part. Paul puts the onus on us to move with the Spirit. Three different times in this passage. Did you notice it? Verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 18, if you are led by Spirit the Spirit. And then verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You see, those are all active things, right? I'm walking, I'm walking, the Spirit is leading me, so that's an inactive verb, but I'm still being led. I'm having to follow, aren't I? We must cooperate. And so another way to word this second item concerning the Holy Spirit would be to say that the Holy Spirit usually works through us, not around us. The Holy Spirit will generally work in your sanctification through you, not around you. The normal way of growing in grace is that the Spirit works in us so that we cooperate with him and thus produce the fruit that we ought. And though I stress that even when we cooperate, it is the Spirit who moves us to do so, yet it is you and I who must cooperate. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. But because God is at work in you, you must work out your salvation. And so it is in regard to walking by the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in you so that you will walk, but you, Galatians 5, must do the walking. And so are you doing that? Are you listening to the Spirit's voice in the Word of God, which the Spirit has inspired? Are you seeking the Spirit's help in your prayer life? Are you obeying the Word that He has given you and the conviction that He brings about in your daily routine as to how you are to put that Word in practice? Are you at all aware of the Spirit's work and presence in your life from day to day? And are you seeking it? And are you cultivating it? Are you keeping in step with where He leads and with what He says in this book? If we live by the Spirit, Paul says if we have genuinely, in other words, been made alive to Christ by the Spirit's power, let us also walk by that same Spirit. And then finally, let's look more directly at what sort of difference the Spirit makes in the lives of those who are led by Him. And here are those famous verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness... Self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, we haven't time today to teach our way through each piece of fruit individually and to look at them all up close, but I think that most of these qualities are fairly well known to us. So that if we just think about them, we know what they mean. And if we just think about them, we probably already know where we fall short and where we need to cry for more of the Spirit's power and where we need to keep in better step with Him. But just to make sure that we know, let me just read the list again slowly so that you can hear the Spirit nudging you about the portion of your orchard that needs some extra attention. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-controlled. Are you sufficiently convicted that there is more walking and more being led by the Spirit and more sowing to the Spirit that you need to do? Well, then let me read the verses one more time. And this time, I want to ask you, especially those of you who are pessimists like me, to listen to the fruit of the Spirit once more. And this time I want you to hear the list not only in comparison with what you should be, which is what we just did and which is important, but this time I want you to examine the fruit of the Spirit in light, not of what you should be, but of what you once were. Can you do that? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did you hear it a little differently this time? I hope you did. It's true, we all have a long way to go, as we saw in our prior reading. But many of us can also say on this reading that we have come a long way, too. For when we Look at the fruit tree of our lives in light of how barren we once were. Perhaps we see a lot more fruit there than our pessimistic natures will normally give ourselves and the Holy Spirit credit for when we read these verses. And I want to leave you with that thought as well today. If you are in Christ, you really do have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, then he is and will produce fruit even if you're the sort of the person like me who's more prone to notice the bare patches on the tree. And that's something worth thanking God for. And when you can see the fruit and thank God for the fruit, perhaps you'll be all the more motivated to produce even more of it. And so don't miss the fruit that is in your life. Indeed, I'd urge you to see what it is and then to be encouraged motivated to produce as much of it as possible so that the boughs of your tree hang down and the orchard of your life is filled with the fragrance of christ if you get just a little whiff of the fragrance of christ in your life from time to time walk by the spirit so that that fragrance goes with you all the more every day everywhere you go Contrary to how the pendulum of thought sometimes swings, there are laws in the Christian life. There are limits upon our lifestyle. There are boundaries. There are things, as in the Ten Commandments and as in verses 19 through 21 here, that God is against in our lives. But when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, there are no limits and no boundaries on how much You should produce the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law.